So book of Revelation, chapter 2, the letter to the church of Ephesus, verses 1 through 7. We're going to read this together, and then we're going to get into a little bit of introduction to the seven letters themselves. Um, I have a couple of slides, we'll talk about that in a moment. So uh, we'll have the words up here on the screen to the scriptures. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, if you do, great, turn in your Bible. There's some paper Bibles uh, behind the pole out in the center of the um, sanctuary there as well. So Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have uh, persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. And as always, we open our hearts to receive whatever you have for us this morning. And Lord, we need your word. These, these letters are from you, Jesus not only written to these seven specific historical churches, but written to all churches in all time, that we might hear, that we might understand. And so, Lord, as we consider this morning the things that you have said, may we sort of approach this, Lord, as just hearing from you a little checkup, a little spiritual checkup, and pointing out things to us as the people of God, globally and internationally and locally, but also as individuals, Lord. So speak for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to bring up those slides, if you don't mind, please, just some introductory slides to the seven letters. So the first slide here, uh, just sort of a a summary of what happens with these letters. There is sort of a pattern to all of these letters as Jesus has written them. So Jesus has written and dictated these letters to the apostle John himself through the angel, his messenger, to John. And there is a, a, a pattern, a sevenfold pattern. You can see they all kind of start with a C here. I didn't come up with that. I'm not that smart. I don't do alliterations that well. Commission to the angel of the church. Character to the one who says this, speaking to uh, the character both of Jesus and to the people who are receiving. Uh, commendation, uh, I know your deeds. Condemnation or uh, a criticism, uh, but I have this against you. There's a correction, repent or turn or change is most often the way that comes across. And then there's a call toward the end of the letter that says, he who has an ear, let him hear. And then there's a challenge to him who overcomes. Uh, by the way, anybody who wants this, let me know. I'll send it to you or I'll print some out. Next slide, please. So there's sort of putting some of this in a, a more of a table format just so we can see it. You can see the seven churches down the left-hand side. You can see some of the descriptions of Christ from chapter 1. And then his commendations, his condemnations, and his corrections kind of just in summary form listed out here. And you'll notice the blanks. Under the commendations, you'll see there's two churches that he has nothing good to say to, uh, Sardis and Laodicea. And of course, we'll get there in the coming weeks. And then there are two churches um, that he has no condemnation for, Smyrna and Philadelphia. 
So you can see there the description of Jesus. He walks among the lampstands. He's the first and the last. He's the sharp two-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth. He has eyes like a flame of fire. The seven spirits of God uh, he opens and no one will shut the doors that are before him. And he is the faithful and true witness. And then you can see these other things. He, he commends for Ephesus, their toil and their perseverance, that they were a working church and they were faithful in that regard. Smyrna, they had tribulation and poverty. They're known as the suffering church. Pergamum, it's, it's almost, you, know, you start to get to these later ones and it's like he's searching to find something good to say. He's, well, you guys didn't deny the faith. That's a good thing. Thyatira, they had love and ministry going on. And Philadelphia was the church of the open door. But the condemnations or the corrections that he brings there, you know, for Ephesus, that they had left or departed from their first love. Pergamum had tolerated false doctrine. So did Thyatira. Sardis, he just says, you guys are dead. You're spiritually dead. How, how, to hear Jesus say that to you, wow. And then Laodicea, he says, you're lukewarm. And it sound, that's way worse than it sounds. And then the correction, you'll see repent, be faithful, repent, hold fast, repent, hold fast, and then open the door. And then finally on the last slide, it's just sort of a picture. You might have this in the back of your Bible or something similar to it. You can see the island of Patmos sort of lower center. It's about 35, 40 miles off the coast of Turkey where you see these seven churches. This is all would would be in what we consider modern day Turkey. And you can see the churches on the left are the churches contained in chapter 2, and the one on, on the right are the churches mentioned in chapter 3. But you can see how John did this in sort of a circular pattern, coming off of Patmos straight to Ephesus, and then going north to Smyrna, and then way north up to Pergamum, and then working the way back down to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So there was a distinct pattern. Uh, you might say, why those seven churches... Um, we don't know specifically why those seven churches, but you can see from the letters that they, they had different issues, right? They had different issues that needed to be addressed. So thank you for that. Um, so again, if you'd like a copy of that, I'm happy to share it with you. One of the other things about the seven churches is that the views of the church through history have been that not only are these letters to these churches to those churches for that time for what they were dealing with. But certainly that these letters were to uh, the churches of all time. And so that it has direct applicability to us today, to anyone who's a member of the church of Jesus Christ uh, today, whenever today is, as people are reading these letters, this applies directly to us. But there's also a view that says that these seven churches... Um, sort of tell the story of church history. And here's an, an idea. Now, this is just, you know, people observing and, and, you know, looking at history and saying this kind of goes with that. And I'll just share it with you briefly. I didn't put this on a slide. I apologize for that. But Ephesus was the church of the first century, and it was generally praiseworthy, but it had left its first love. Smyrna would typify the church from the first to the fourth century, the church which suffered persecution under the Roman rulers and from others. The church of Pergamos during the 4th and the 5th centuries, Christianity was recognized as an official religion through Constantine. Christianity became the official state religion through him. Thyatira from the 6th to the 15th century, and that's a very long period of time, and this was the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, largely which held sway in Western Christendom until rocked by the Reformation of Martin Luther in the 1500s. And in the East, the Orthodox Church ruled. Sardis, the 16th and the 17th centuries, were the, the post-Reformation period churches, but the light of the Reformation soon came dim. The Reformation was good, but it didn't go far enough in what it reformed in, in terms of the church. Philadelphia, during the 18th and the 19th centuries, there were mighty revivals and great missionary movements. And then Laodicea, which many believe is the last church, is the church of the last days. 
And it's pictured as lukewarm and apostate. It's a church of liberalism and ecumenism, right? Isn't that where we are today? Across the landscape of the church? So each church has its own distinctive character. But these, these ideas, this idea that they cover a periods of history, you know, it kind of fits with the way church history has played out. So as we come to chapter 2... We find that Jesus authors this letter and he says to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And as we mentioned last week, but it's worth repeating, we don't believe that these are letters to angels, specifically heavenly beings. You know, angels don't need letters, do they? God can just summon them in in a light speed moment back to his throne and tell them what they need to know. These, the word angel means messenger, and although its primary translation in the, in the Bible is actually angels as we think of them, it, it is often translated to mean a messenger. And we believe in this case it really means the pastor or the leaders of the local churches. So to the angel, or if you will, the pastor of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now remember from chapter 1, Jesus defined for us that the seven stars were the angels of the seven churches or the pastors of those seven churches. And then the seven golden lampstands was his presence in the midst of the church, the presence of the church being represented by a lampstand. And of course, the lampstand being there to give off light. And so Jesus' picture is he's got these seven lampstands around him, and he's standing there with his hand, and in his hand, as it were, sort of seven stars or the seven pastors. And so this picture that he's painting for us is, it's a good one, but it's a frightening one, especially if you're in the role of being the pastor of a church. The good news is you're in his hand. Great song, right? Somebody should write a song called, he's got the whole world in his hands. And he's got the church in his hands, doesn't he? And he has the leaders to those churches in his hands. That's a good thing. That's comforting. It's interesting that the name Ephesus means darling or desired one. We know that, and, and you know, this is homework, you know, you've got, you get homework every week, that's just the way it is here. Go back and read Acts chapters 19 and 20. For when Paul first encountered the church at Ephesus, and I wish we had time to just kind of sit here and read through it together. Because as Paul went there, he encountered this city, this, this great city that was famous for its temple prostitution, the temple of Diana or Artemis was there. It was uh, world famous for being a religious, cultural, and economic center of the region. I don't know if you know this, but Ephesus is actually credited for being the home of the first world bank. So banking and finance sort of didn't originate in Ephesus, but Ephesus ended up being sort of like, you know, New York City is today, for the most part, you know, sort of the center for economics and banking. But, you know, when you couple money and, and power with worshiping false idols and, you know, the, the temple of Diana where these, these things would happen every night as the sun set, then all the temple prostitutes would come down and all those things would happen every night. This was a tremendous blight on their city. But remember when Paul went in, and this is why I encourage you to go back and read it, as he shared the gospel there, People got saved. And as they got saved, it was such a radical transformation that it tells us there in Acts 19 that they were so moved that they took their books of incantations and spells and witchcraft because it was a city filled with those dark arts. And they had a book burning ceremony. And they were bringing their books and burning them in the city square. Because their lives were changed. And that was in the face of the economic system. It was in the face of the Temple of Diana. It was in the face of everything that the world accepted. And you know that the scriptures say over and over and over, I think Isaiah said it best, where he said, 
you know, when they call good evil and evil good. You see, these churches in these areas, they were living in times like that. We may say, well, they had it way easier back then than we have today. No, they didn't. All the same things existed. It just wasn't on the internet or on your phone in your pocket. But it existed. Those cultures existed. And it was normal. The normal thing to happen is even if you were a married man to participate with the temple of Diana, it was just accepted. It was a common thing. And then you mix in all of these other things that were going on there. And so when when Paul came and when he preached the gospel, it was a radical transformation. Again, go back and read it in uh, Acts chapter 19. Then, of course, 25 or so years later, um, you know, we have the, the letter that is after the cross. We have the letter to the church of Ephesus written by Paul. And as you read the letter to the church of Ephesus, here's the cool thing. Over 21 times, or I, I counted 21 times, where the word love or some form of the word love is, is mentioned in the letter to the Ephesians. So clearly, as Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, a focus of what he wrote was the love of God and the love that we have for one another. So this was a very interesting city. Ephesus was a stronghold of Satan. But Jesus is stronger than Satan, isn't he? And it says after they burned their books in Acts 19 verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. This church was off to a rip-roaring start. It was like somebody just lit the bonfire in Ephesus. And so to the angel of the church of Ephesus, he, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, Jesus is telling this pastor and these leaders and the leaders of any churches who would come after them because you see in chapter one, he said, write these letters to the churches. And it was intended that all of the churches would read the letters. It wasn't like there was a sealed envelope and said, nope, this one's for Ephesus. This one's for Smyrna. You can't read each other's letters. It was intended to be a circular letter. And so this letter really was probably more like a scroll that had all seven letters on it. And they made copies of that and took that to all the churches. And all the churches read them. And when they got to the one that was addressed to them, it was like, oh, he's talking about us. And so they would read these letters. And Jesus, of course, said things like, Where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in their midst. And Jesus is saying, I'm holding you in my hands. I'm walking in the midst of you, church. And so the question when we see these things is, what does Jesus see? What does he experience when he walks among his church? See, the church is the people, right? Don't think of Jesus as being here walking around in this room. I mean, he does. He is. He He meets with us. But what does Jesus see? What does he experience in the midst of these churches, of of the local churches? He's walking around the body. The body of Christ is the people, of course. And he says in verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. So one of the great things going for the church of Ephesus was that they were, they were strong on doctrine. They were strong on the word of God. And because of that, because of what happened when, when Jesus came in, now, now the letter here is being written around AD 95, 96. That's when, when this whole thing's taking place. So this is like 30 years after the letter to Ephesus was written by Paul. And so now we can see as we read this letter, compared to the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote, that there's a cooling. You know, Jesus is having to come and give some some critique and some correction to this body of believers. But the commendation here is you're a working church. You're busy in a good way. Now, when it says in the Bible that we as believers should be working works, it's not saying, hey, okay, everybody, come on, get busy, come on. If you're not signed up for something, get it, go sign up. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about when we become saved, when Jesus comes into our lives, when we realize that we're forgiven, 
our lives change, or at least they should change. And when they change, because we realize that the Holy Spirit's come to be within us, the, the Holy Spirit, the love of God's been shed abroad in our hearts through the Spirit has been given to us, that something's happened within us. And so because of that, and this is where James comes along in his little epistle, and he says, show me your faith by your works. In other words, there should be works coming forth like fruit from our lives. Works are a a produce or a product from the work of God in our lives, for the work that God has done for us. You see, God has redeemed us. We have been saved from, we've been saved out of, from sin, out of the world, out of darkness, and been brought into the kingdom of his marvelous light. So if that hasn't changed us, then I don't know what will. So there should be works in our lives, coming forth from our lives. And so he says to this church, I know your works. I see your labor, and the word is literally toil there. That they were committed as a church to, most likely as I read this, to reach their city. To, to reach others with the gospel of Christ. He says, I see your patience. That you patiently bear up under trials but also that you cannot bear those who are evil. Who knows what this means totally, but certainly the toleration of evil in their society. Because where do they live again? They just walk out the front door every morning, look up on the hill, there's the Temple of Diana. Talk about evil. And you have tested those who say they were apostles and are not. You know, Paul had the problem right from the beginning of his ministry in Acts 13 and 14, where he and Barnabas first went out, where the Judaizers are the people who came behind Paul into the churches to say, you know, Paul's not fully correct. He doesn't have, he's a little touched, a little blinded by that light he saw in the desert. He doesn't have it all figured out yet. And we're here to fill in the gaps of all the things he told you. Remember Paul, when he wrote to the Galatians, he had to say to them, listen, if anyone comes in after me and they tell you a different gospel than what I've preached to you, let him be accursed. I say again, if anyone has come in preaching a different gospel, sharing, quote, a different word with you, let him be accursed. Now in the Bible, in the New Testament, there were apostles, what we call the original apostles. And there are no apostles like those guys today. Those guys were the guys who had been with Jesus. Those were the ones that Jesus first appointed. Uh, They were there on the day of Pentecost. They received the gift of the Spirit. And they went out, they wrote the New Testament. But later in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says there's this ministry, some as apostles, uh, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers. And the word apostle simply means one who is sent. And I believe there is an apostolic gifting today. And I've, I've seen and met some of those people who seem to be people who have a, a real gift for encouraging the church or, or planting churches. Those are good things. But to say that we have apostles today like we had in the first century with those original 12 apostles, I would say is not true. I don't see how it could possibly be true. And so Paul is saying here, excuse me, uh, Jesus is saying here to this church, uh, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. Now today, I've mentioned this before in the past, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there is a group called the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. And these are people who believe that God has reawakened the New Testament gift of apostle, and that God is giving fresh new revelation today, through these people who are, quote, apostles. It's a scary thing, because when these people come in, and they're, they're based in different places, but I'm just going to probably get in trouble for saying this, but it's okay. Um, Bethel Church. They're one. Uh, Kansas City Prophets, they're called, in Kansas City, Missouri, IHOP, the International House of Prayer. Those folks... Uh, there, I could list names, are people who are a part of that movement. Now, I'm not saying they're bad or evil. I'm not, that God is the judge, not me. But they are going around the country today saying, we are apostles. And we are receiving fresh information from God. 
And I've, I've met some of them. I have uh, interacted with some of these folks, or at least some of their disciples. And they believe when you start talking with them, they're like, well, you know, it's great that you guys study the Bible, but we're getting some fresh Bible today. And uh, I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. Because how, do, how does anybody test what you say? If this isn't the standard, what is? And so these people were dealing with people who came by who said they were apostles. He said, and not, he said, you tried them, you found them out. You know that they were not who they said they were. Now, Paul warned them about this. He warned the Ephesian church about this in Acts chapter 20. You may remember, Paul was on his way back to Jerusalem for the last time in Acts chapter 20. And he says, therefore, I testify to you today, Acts 20, verse 26, that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, that's pastor, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Same things happening today. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified." So this is the last word Paul spoke to this church before he went away. So verse 3, and you have persevered, and you have patience, and you have labored for my name's sake, and you have not become weary. These are good things. When the going got tough, you didn't give up. When doors were slammed in your face, you went around them. When things happened that would discourage you and dishearten you. You didn't give up. You didn't stop. Galatians 6 says, let us not lose heart in doing good for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writing to them said, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And Hebrews 12, 3, for consider him, that is Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. What causes us to grow weary and to become discouraged? It's getting our eyes off of Jesus. It's missing the fact that he's called us, he's empowered us. The greater good is the good of the gospel. The greater good is, you know, there's only two destinations for people, heaven or hell. That's it. And we need to remember that. It's heaven or hell. And, you know, we, we sit here, meeting, not just you and me sitting here in this room, but anybody, any believer, you know, we're, we're in the heaven camp. Praise God for that. But we're not there because we did something good. We're not there because we figured it out. We're there because God saved us. And the call of the gospel came to us and we responded. And where you fall on the spectrum of Calvinism and Arminianism, I don't care. Because the Bible says, whosoever will may come. The Bible also says that you are predestined before the foundation of the earth. God's got it all under control. So, you've persevered. You have patience. Hopefully you have patience. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit having patience with people. Don't tolerate evil, but we have to have patience. We, we have to understand that people, no matter how evil they may be, how, no matter how deceived they may be, this is why Paul says so many times, and such were some of you. You were on the road to hell, but the gospel, the light, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, some person whom God directed in your path, they, they brought the word, they brought good news. There was a bumper sticker on a car in front of them, whatever it may have been, that directed them down the right path. So you were saved by grace through faith. And so have patience. Understand that God does love the sinner. Yes, God hates the sin. He doesn't hate people. And neither should we. Nevertheless, verse 4, I have this against you 
that you have left, and you might want to take your pen or pencil or highlighter, verse 4, circle or highlighter, underline the word left, not lost. You have left your first love. The ESV says you have abandoned the love you had at first. So the word left indicates deliberateness, that you've forsaken, you've neglected, you've departed. So Jesus says to this church, man, despite all this stuff that's going on, you're busy, you're doing good things, you're persevering, you don't tolerate evil, you you love truth, you test the apostles who come by and you figure out who's good, who's not. It takes a lot of work, by the way. I've had people come in here who, under a cloak of something, decide, you know, they're here and they know the Bible and they're quoting scripture and all that, and then you kind of, just over time, you get to know them and there's this check in your spirit and you're kind of like, yeah, and you start asking questions And then they leave. And you've got to be able to be filled with God's spirit. You've got to understand that you've been bought with a price. And the minute we start to forget those things, then we've left our first love. And notice that he said, you have left your first love. Here's how he describes the relationship of people coming to Jesus. When you come to Jesus, when you are saved, when you're born again, choose your words, something happens. And he describes this really sort of in in the language of you know, something most of us understand with, you know, someone you fall in love with, a human being. And you, and you know how it is if you've, if you've been through that, that, you know, when you're in that courtship phase, you're dating and there's this, you know, playfulness and this back and forth and then you're like, man, I can't wait to spend time with them. You're calling all the time, you know, whatever it might be. And you're just like, I can't wait to be with them. I just can't wait to be with them. And in the early days of our walk with God, I think what he's pointing to is that there's something in the beginning. There's this flame. There's this flame of passion. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about sexual passion. We're talking about God here. But we're talking about a a fervency, right? A desire, just a, man, I can't wait to get up in the morning to read his word. I can't wait to go to church on Sunday. I can't wait to go to that Bible study. I can't wait to meet with those believers. I can't wait to go to the prayer meeting, whatever it might be. And I'm not throwing out guilt things here. I'm just saying this is just, there's, I know this is what it was like for me in the early days. It's like if there was something going on, I was there. Because I just, I wanted the Lord. I wanted to learn. I wanted to hear. I wanted to grow. So if there was an opportunity, I was there. And I think that's sort of the idea here when he says that you have left your first love. The word first means chiefs or foremost, first in rank or order. So as you think about your own life and you're coming to Christ and how that whole thing happened for you, you see, it's not about where you and you know, a hell's angel and you got saved, you know, that way, or you know, your testimony is your testimony. But here's the, po- the point. The point is, was there a point of conversion? Was there a point of change? And what happened in your life after that? And think back on that. Now, if you can look back and you can say, I don't really have a point where there was change, well, you might want to question the gospel. Go read John 3.16. Go read the gospels again. Go in and say, Lord, you know, I don't really remember that. You know, not so much that you had the lightning bolt from heaven or the light like Paul had on the road to Damascus, but however it happened to you, however Jesus came to you, however your salvation turned out in that moment when you first believed and all of that, following that, subsequent to that, there there should be a period of growth, a period of just being in love with Jesus. There's this thing in, in worship today you know, we sang some songs this morning where we said, I love you, Lord. And, you know, we sang, you know, Lord, I'm singing you a love song. There are people who are critical of songs like that because they, they've called it, and I've read this and studied it, uh, they call it theoerotica. 
And they, they kind of condemn like songs like we sang. Now, there are some songs that I think go over the, the, the edge. But being able to say in song and in prayer, Lord, I love you. John said, we love him because he first loved us. Jesus said, in response to the Pharisees, here's the first and the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. If that's not a passionate love, I don't know what is. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, and you shall have no other gods before me. But here's what happened, Paul writing to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, and I have this underlined in my Bible. I'm reading the verse to you, actually out of the NASB instead of the NKJV, because I like the way it's rendered here. Paul says uh, in 2 Corinthians 11:3, but I'm afraid, speaking for this church, I'm afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And that's what happens, isn't it? We get deceived into thinking, well, I don't have time. I need to hit the snooze. I need that extra half hour. Whatever it is that keeps you from the Lord. Now, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. He said, If you love me, keep my commandments. See, these are not heavy, burdensome laws he's laying on top of us. He's saying, If you love me, here's how it's manifest. If you love me, you keep my commandments. Let me say it differently. If you love me, you want to keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll want to love others. Yeah, but I don't like so-and-so, and I don't like this, and I don't like that. That's not the issue. The way they dress, the fact they have bad breath, the fact they have tats, doesn't matter, right? Love them. Because this is what Jesus said. In fact, he said, here's the way everybody will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is all in John 13, 14, 15. Just, just go read it. It's just filled with love. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Has Jesus ever manifest himself to you? I hope he has. You see, this love that John is talking about here by the Spirit, by the angel, by Jesus himself to this church is saying you left your first love. It's like you put it on a shelf and said, one day I'll go back there if I need it again. Right now I'm all good. And so this idea is, we could go through, I have like two pages of love verses here. I don't want to overwhelm you, but there's just so much that points us to the fact that love is the measure You see, when we read the verses in Galatians 5 that says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then all those things are listed after it, I don't think there's nine fruits of the Spirit. In my understanding, there's one fruit of the Spirit, and that one fruit of the Spirit is love manifesting itself through joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the fruits of love, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. So here's the question. Do you have that love? When you were first saved, can you look back? I know I can. And, and, and say, I was just, I was in love with Jesus. But just as in marriage, there often is a cooling, isn't there? There, there's, you know, we, we leave it behind. Things aren't what they were in the beginning. We, you know, we, we don't exist today in our marriage relationships. Maybe they were when we, when we were courting. 
But we still have that love, hopefully, for one another. We still want to spend time together. We still can't wait to get home and be together. All those things. One person said here, the Ephesians' cooling of heart that had overtaken them was a dangerous forerunner of spiritual apathy that later was to erase all Christian testimony because today there's no church in Ephesus in this important center of the early church, as we will see below. The pattern is sadly familiar in church history, a cooling of the church's love for Christ, then its replacement by a love for the things of the world, resulting in compromise and spiritual corruption, followed by a departure from the faith and a loss of effective spiritual testimony. This is what happened to that church. This is what happens as repeating patterns so often to churches. You know, so often when a church gets planted, when it gets founded, it's, it's being founded and planted out of that just, you know, hey man, we're in love with God and we just want to see God do a work in this neighborhood, in this community, in this city. But then too often what happens is you get down the road and they just become another church. Concerned about doctrine, here's their doctrinal positions. If you don't like them, you go over here to that church which has different doctrinal positions. But where's the love? Where's the presence of Jesus? Where's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit? So how do you go back? You didn't lose it. You left it. How do you return to that first love? You may remember the interaction that Jesus had with Martha and Mary at their house, Luke chapter 10. Jesus went to their house as he often did and Martha and Mary were there in Lazarus and Martha was busy you know, doing all the things. You know, we have a guest in our house and the serving and all of those things, the cleaning, the cooking, getting things in order. But Mary was in the other room sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Dad's not here. Can you be our dad for a minute and please talk some sense into her? And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. And what was that? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And this is where I believe we leave it. The day, if we could trace it back, and we may not remember, but the day, the first day, we put our Bible on the shelf and we no longer kept that that appointment, that date with Jesus. And when that no longer was important for us, when it was no longer a priority for us, and it got dusty because it sat up there, that's when you left it. How do you get back to it? You just do what he says here. Verse 5, remember, repent, and repeat. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And notice how he describes that leaving of the first love. You have fallen. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Go back and think about it. Think about those, those early days. Think about what happened. Go back and review I'll call it Christianity 101. Go review the gospel. Go review the love of God. Go review what your salvation cost him. We just sang it. I'll never know how much it cost to see your life, your love on that cross. And he says, and do the first works. Go back to the way it was at the beginning. Be zealous the way you were then. Be passionate the way you were then. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. Now, I don't know what that means. If the lampstand was the presence of Jesus among his church, does that mean that he's like, well, you guys don't seem to need me, so I'm out of here? I don't know, but it's scary to think. And he says, unless you repent. And the repent is to turn, metanoia, to change your mind, to say, I realize, to do that one thing that's so hard for us to do, right? To admit I was incorrect. To repent is to realize I was wrong. To realize I've sinned. That's what you did at the beginning, right? Repentance was a part of the process of coming to Christ. Saying I was wrong. I thought the answer was over here. I thought it was in sex, drugs, rock and roll, or the world, or intellectualism, or whatever your God is. 
And I realized I was wrong. There's only one God and it's you, Lord. And you come and you bow before him and you worship him and you say, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me your great salvation so rich and free. Repent, turn, go back to where you left it. Go back and look in the last place where you put it. And he says, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come quickly. Remember the prodigal son. He'd had enough of dad and his brother and all of that. And he said, dad, let's just pretend you died. Can I have my part of the estate now? I'm I'm kind of done. Okay, here you go. Here's your half. Remember what he did? He went out. Now, the word prodigal, in case you didn't know, means wasteful. So the prodigal son, this son, he goes out and he goes everywhere. Who knows where he went, to Vegas or whatever. And he just blew everything. And then he finds himself one day begging to work for some farmer and he he's, he has nothing to eat, and he's sleeping with the pigs. He's eating pig slop, and he comes to himself, and he goes, you know, the servants in my father's house had it better than this. Maybe if I humble myself and I go back, and I say I'm sorry and I was wrong, and I was, I was an idiot. I didn't know anything. Maybe if I go back crawling on my hands and knees, maybe my dad will take me back. And so he arose, he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and he had compassion and he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. Notice the father was there watching on the horizon for that familiar gate of his son to come back. And as he came, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, hey, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Now he didn't say, this dude smells like pigs. Go clean him up first and then we'll have a conversation. What did he do? He said, put the robe on him as he is. Kill the fatted calf now. Let's have a feast. Let's have a party because he came back. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again and he was lost and is found and they began to be merry. What is the point of the prodigal son? Of how, you know, Jesus said it in a different way. He says, when one sinner turns to faith, the angels in heaven rejoice before the throne of God. The joy that God has over you. Do you understand that you are his beloved, that he loves you, he wants you as his son or his daughter? That's why he sent his only begotten son, that you might have everlasting life. If we can sit here, if we can hear that and there's just there's nothing, I mean, there's no nothing in our hearts, then I suggest you get on your knees and not that I believe you receive Christ by praying the sinner's prayer, but something like that, you've got to say, God, help me. God, I want to believe, I want to trust you, I want to follow you. So remember where you've fallen from, repent. And then the repeat part is you repent as often as necessary. You see, life is a life of repentance. We don't have one repentance in our life when we come to Christ. We repent multiple times throughout our lives, throughout the days, throughout the weeks. I always think of that man who was standing in the temple court that Jesus saw, standing there beating his breast, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's like my mantra. So Jesus is calling this church and he's calling us to rekindle your faith, to return, to rekindle your love for Jesus. We want to know him. We want to be with him. We want to be in his word. We want to be in his presence. We want to be in worship. We want to be in fellowship. We want to be in Bible studies. A natural byproduct of all of this is to want to tell other people about the very good news that I've received. Because you see, if I don't want to tell others, don't write it off to your personality. God worked in Paul. God worked in the disciples and the apostles. God worked in Timothy, who was a very timid guy. You know, Paul left Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus. Later, John became the pastor of the church of Ephesus. John, as he's riding on the Isle of Patmos back to Ephesus, probably was having flashbacks to, I was there. I was with these people. I shepherded that church for a period of time. Remember the man, the demoniac from the Gadarenes, when 
Jesus had cast the demons out that was legions and he had, the, 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 the man sat there in his right mind. And Jesus sent him away. Now, the man wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to say, hey, I just want to join the, the band here and you know, I'll be a roadie on the show with you. And he says, no, no, return to your own house, Luke 8, and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city the great things Jesus had done for him. This was a man the whole city hated. They're like, we're glad you're chained up in a cave outside the city. We don't even want our kids to see you. You're hideous. But now he's redeemed. He's saved. Do you remember Jesus with Simon the Pharisee's house? Remember the woman who came in and she was washing the feet of Jesus with her tears? And Simon was sitting there and he was thinking in his heart, man, if he knew who this woman was, he wouldn't even let her come near him. He wouldn't let her touch him. She's a prostitute. She's a whore. And Jesus says, you know, I got something to say to you, Simon. Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Now tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, oh, I suppose the one who forgave him more. He says, you've rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss or greeting, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, a customary greeting saying, welcome into our house, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. How much were you forgiven? But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There's a couple of different takes on what this means, but the words Nikeo and laity, Nikeo means to rule over Laetans, the laity. So there was this, there's this common idea that this, these were the people who was, the church is growing now, the people are coming in trying to set up structure, and basically they're trying to set up hierarchy and to rule over people. And Jesus says, uh, you hate the deed of the Nicolaitans, the people who come in and try to set up structure and rule over you, and I also hate that. Didn't Jesus tell his disciples over and over and over? He says, listen, don't lord it over them like the Gentiles do. Don't lord it over them, love them. And that was the idea that Jesus gave to them. So this first love, it's an abandonment of everything for a love that has abandoned everything. First love is an abandonment of everything for a love that has abandoned everything. In other words, Jesus left heaven. He came to earth to come and to be with us. And he showed us what love looks like, but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This phrase in these letters means churches, plural. This is the word of God to the church at Ephesus, to the other churches in the circle who would read it, and to all of us downstream from that who would read it. So if you have an ear, you might want to reach up and just double check. Yep, still there. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To hear what the Spirit says, that means you have to have spiritual discernment. That means you have to be born again. So he's speaking to his church. To him who overcomes... I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You know, that's the promise of eternal life. And he's saying, if you will persevere, if you will return, recognize what's wrong. This is just one church. We've got the others to look at. Recognize what's wrong. Recognize the deficiency. Agree with me with what I'm calling out and do what I said. And this is like, you know, when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, You have a raging infection, take this antibiotic for 10 days and you'll get better. 
If you walk away and you say, not going to do it, probably going to go septic and die. But if you do what the doctor says, you're going to get better. You're going to be restored to health. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. The overcoming aspect is to do what Jesus said, is to take his prescription. It's to remember, to return, to repent. So if you find yourself this morning in the place where your love for him has grown cold, the answer is simple. Go back to the beginning. Go to the first love. Just go all, throw it all away. And some of us have this idea, sort of like our houses or like a room or like a garage, right? It's like, I know this junk I got to deal with first. Once I clean it all out, and it's like, no, 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 no. Throw a match in there. <laughs> Let it burn. Go do the one thing that matters. Here's where I think we get off track, and we'll close with this. You remember in the parable of the soils, Matthew 13, Jesus talks about a sower went out to sow, and the, the seed was the word of God, right? And as the sower went out to sow, some of the seed fell on the hard path. Nothing happened with it. The, the birds, which he said were the emissaries of Satan, they came and they stole that seed. The seed had no opportunity to take root because the ground was hard anyway. Some fell on the rocky soil. It was very shallow and yet sprung up quickly, but it had no root. It couldn't really grow. And as I read those, I think those are people who hear and receive the word of God. Well, the first ones never got to. The second ones, you know, kind of this initial, yeah, yeah, sounds good. But then they just walk away. And there's never any fruit from their lives. But then soil number three comes along and he says, and some fell in amongst the the thorns. And when it sprang up, it mixed in with those thorns. And it says it choked out the fruitfulness of the word. That's where I think the majority of us are today, where I think the majority of the churches, where the worries and the cares of the world have choked out the fruitfulness. And then there's the last one, right? It says it fell on good soil, and there was 30, 60, and 100 fold. That's where we want to be. Most of us are in soil number three. We want to be in soil number four, right? What happens in our lives so often is we come to Christ. Now we're in relationship. Hey, not religion, but relationship. But then we slip into routine, and routine turns into rut, and rut turns into rebellion. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Overcome, obey, do what Jesus said. Return to your first love. I can't tell you what that means for you, but return to your first love. Go back to the beginning. Do those first works as you did back then. And I suggest to you it starts with this book. Now, you may say, I read it and it doesn't make any sense to me. That's all right. Keep, keep doing it. Keep reading it. Over and over and over. Read it, read it, read it. And then you will discover as you do that, the Spirit of God will open your eyes and give illumination to your heart and mind. And, and you know what it says in, in the Beatitudes as Jesus was teaching? He said, you know, uh, pray for, to have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Pray for that. God, give me a hunger and a thirst for your word. Read Psalm 119. It's all about the word. You see, the word of God guides us back. This is our word. This is our word. This is his word. This is his love letter to us from Genesis to Revelation. Read it. Let him speak to you. If you don't know where, start in the New Testament. Read the gospel. Start with the gospel of John. And don't get caught up in, I've got to read for an hour a day. Just sit down and read and say, Lord, meet me here in this time, in this place, in this space. And he will. I promise you, he will. John Wesley said this, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Oh, that we would be like that, a fervent love. The love that covers a multitude of sins. Listen, right now, this morning, in the presence of God, there's no shame. You know, I go to the doctor every year. I, I got a lot of issues. And every time I go, they, you know, like this year, they discovered I'm diabetic. I'm like, oh, great. But when they tell you what's going on, if you don't listen and do something about it, you're going to die eventually, it's going to kill you. 
If you have left your first love and you don't do this and you don't return to your first love and you don't, you don't, if you don't do that, you're going to discover what he means when he says, I'm going to take my lampstand. And you don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. As a church, I don't want us to be there. Jesus wants us to love him. Let me ask you this morning. Do you know that he loves you? And number two, do you love him? Lord, this morning, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. God, I pray that uh, no one walks out of here feeling condemned or any such thing, but that they've heard an urgent call from your voice to say, come back to me. And Lord, may we draw close. May we come back to that first love. God, help us, we pray. Fan that flame. Lord, lay aside everything else, all all the stuff, whatever it is, lay it aside and to come back to you. If you're sitting here this morning going, my life's too busy. Well, God has given you the ability to make priorities and to make decisions. Maybe you need to make some changes to your life to make room for God. Jesus, we love you. And we say that unashamedly. Lord, help us in the weakness of our faith to love you more. Help us, Lord, to fall in love with you like we did at the first all over again. Lord, for any here this morning who don't know you, we just pray that this would be the moment where they would say, Lord Jesus, I I want that love. I want that relationship with you. And Lord, meet them where they are right now. Come in. Join them to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing a song.